Hi, and welcome back to Toy Fix. We're on episode eight. We're looking at episode wave- eight. <laughs> it's it's like episode eight, but it's just got a little something special. We're looking at wave four of the X Men Toy Biz line, the heroes. The welcome heroes. back, Andy. Welcome back, Wes. So, context: we spent a lot of time on 1993 in the last episode, but I do have a little bit of material to cover. In 1993, we're getting sort of the full court press on X-Men showing up in media. The animated series we know premiered in 92, but then we're getting all sorts of cross-promotional events. We get, happily, the Pizza Hut promotion. Oh my gosh, yes, we could buy like cassettes with single episodes of the animated series at Pizza Hut. And those like really nice black VHS cases, and they each, and then they came with a trading card. They were just like throwing trading cards into anything that would carry them back in the mid-90s, weren't they? It's almost uh, as if there was a second bubble happening in that part of the collecting world. The episodes also had some sort of like interview with Marvel creators on it too, I think. Yeah, the opening segment had, I think, 10 to 15 minute segments with Stan Lee and some of the other comic creators. And one thing that's really interesting is the interviews and the talk discussion of the themes of the X-Men. None of the people featured in those were actually part of the animated series. Before I get outside of Pizza Hut, can I talk a little bit about the free comics that came when you bought a kid's meal? Wait, wait, Pizza Hut had kid's meals? Yeah, you'd get the personal pan pizzas and a small plastic cup that you could refill multiple times with 140 calories worth of Coca-Cola. I'm making like a really disgusted face about that. Like for me, the high point of Pizza Hut promotions was when they had the Land Before Time hand puppets. We did have the the Littlefoot puppet. Interestingly, the X-Men line, they had four comic books that you could collect. It had an overarching storyline where uh, the X-Men broke up into teams of two to go get parts to fix a broken Cerebro. Sounds like the setup for like a video game. You know, Rogue and Gambit go to the danger room and they speak all Southern and... I'm sorry, they had to go get a piece for Cerebro from the danger room? Don't think about this too hard, Andy. (laughs) That's like the X-Men equivalent of taking the batteries out of your remote control to put it into your keyboard. That is accurate. Issue two has Beast and Storm go to Muir Island. Then, of course, Wolverine and Jubilee go to the Savage Land. Right. Place that's known for having, like, spare technology lying around. Like, they, they like, ask a T-Rex if they could borrow a flux capacitator. And then in issue four, which is really exciting, Cyclops and Bishop team up and travel to cyberspace to get a missing part of <laughs> Cerebro. Oh, my gosh. It's like when, when you lose an important part of your operating system on your computer, you accidentally deleted it, and you have to go into, like, recovery file mode and, and reboot the whole thing. And no surprise, Professor X and Jean Grey sort of hang back and watch everybody else do stuff. Just like in the animated series. Also, the first X-Men video game for Sega came out in 93. I'm so glad you brought that up. I had forgotten about that. We were a video game free household at the time. But one year for Christmas, Santa Claus did bring us some coupons where we could rent video games from Blockbuster. And we didn't even rent this game. <laughs> I-, I was also living in a video game free household. You know, at the time, I, I hated it. But I-, I applaud my parents for holding the line on that. Agreed. A thousand percent. I was gonna say it's a really fun game. It's okay. It's like a typical side-scrolling game. But do you remember the advertisements for that game? In the Sega TV commercials for like all their games at the time, there was like a sort of logo that said this is Sega or something like that. In that ad, Wolverine was like scratching into a chalkboard. Hear the sound. 
razor-sharp adamantium claws make when they extract their revenge. Yeah, that looked pretty exciting. It had a very scary-sounding voiceover. They're here. Marvel's X-Men on Sega Genesis. System the game, so separately. Playable characters are Wolverine, Gambit, Cyclops, and Nightcrawler. Well, one of the things that was cool about this game was that you could actually call on the other X-Men. Like, for example, you could call on Storm and she would show up with like a huge hurricane and like destroy all the enemies on the screen at the time. Did, did you make it all the way through the game? Did you beat it? Yeah. One of like the sort of weird things about the game is that, so the premise is that you're in the danger room and then someone is like hacked into the danger room. When you get to the end of the second to last level, after you defeat the boss, who I think is Mojo, you get a screen that says um, you need to reset the computer in order to escape the danger room. And at that time, you actually have to press the reset button on your Sega Genesis which is like, I think, very counterintuitive for players in video games of that time. And if you don't do that, then you don't progress. That's really funny because I actually read a review of the game and it has it as one of the 15 hardest games of all time because of that reset button. Because if you overpressed it, it would reset the actual game. Oh, I didn't realize that. And how many times do you have a video game that breaks the fourth wall like that, requiring you to do physically something? It's Exactly. Like Also, like it, this was like before the internet, so you couldn't just Google like what I do when I get to this point. So that was some of the stuff happening outside of the comics at the time. In terms of what was happening in the comics, I think we talked about this last, probably in episode three, the image exodus, after Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld and Willis Portasi all left Marvel Comics to found Image Comics. The X-Men line was in a tough place because those were the major creators that they had given the keys to the kingdom to. At the end of 92 into very early 93, there was the, the Executioner song crossover that wrapped up a lot of the lingering plot lines. You know, this was the year that they brought Magneto back and had the big Fatal Attractions crossover. They started just doing things that I think were like fairly experimental in some ways for the time. So like that was the year that Wolverine lost his adamantium, which was a really big deal and like a major change to the status quo. Shall we talk about the figures? If we're looking only at the heroes, that gives us only three toys to talk about. Here we go again. Bishop. I already know that part. Who or what are you? A time traveler like you. You can't stop the plague your way. We've got to find a Nobody way. Nobody gets in my way. I got a job to do. Accidentally wrenched back through several decades by the time-twisting evil mutant named Fitzroy, Bishop arrived in our era from one of Earth's many possible futures. Bishop survived the battle that followed thanks to his mutant ability to absorb the energy attacks of others and turn that power back against his foes. Stranded in our time, Bishop has added his might to that of the present-day X-Men by joining their gold team. It's interesting. I think this is one of the first times we've seen the gold team referenced on a card back. This is the first time, to my recollection, that we've seen it at all. Bishop, whose real name would eventually be revealed to be to be Lucas Bishop, first appeared in Uncanny X-Men 282, and that was actually the second issue of the gold team. Bishop is from the future. He's actually from the same future as the Days of Future Past storyline from way back in Uncanny X-Men 141. But Bishop is from 
from a point further on in that timeline. He's a member of the XSE, which stands for Xavier's Security Enforcers. He's sort of like a cop. At this point in the future, the mutants are no longer in concentration camps. They've been allowed to police themselves. He is sucked back in time when he follows the evil mutant Trevor Fitzroy through a time portal. And Bishop actually doesn't arrive back in the past alone. He arrives with two of his fellow XSE officers, Malcolm and Randall. So, you know, I've already talked a bit. And what's interesting is like, I haven't even gotten to like what's really confusing about Bishop's character. In the issue he, he debuted, the cover said his name is, is Bishop and nothing will ever be the same. I don't know if I would say that nothing would ever be the same after Bishop showed up, but he brought with him a pretty substantial thematic addition to the X-Men as a concept. He eventually joins the X-Men in Uncanny X-Men 287, which is just a couple of issues later. The two people he travels back with both die, so they're gone. But What's interesting is that when he was still in the future, Bishop was chasing Fitzroy and he ended up in the X-Men's war room and he found a recording of Jean Grey. The recording had been degraded, so he only got bits and pieces of it, but she is talking about how the X-Men had been betrayed by one of their own, that one of the X-Men had turned evil and had killed all the other X-Men. The, the last line of the recording is this character who's off screen, so we don't see who it is, entering the room where Jean Grey is and killing her. When Bishop is still in the future, he's investigating this because he didn't realize that the X-Men had been killed by one of their own. So he goes and talks to the witness, LeBeau. And LeBeau is, of course, the real name of Gambit. And this character that he meets with appears to be an elderly Gambit. And he asks LeBeau, like, what happened? Who killed the X-Men? And LeBeau said, you know, I was there, but I'm not going to tell you that. Flash forward, Bishop comes into the past and joins the X-Men, like, in our present. And this is the beginning of the x storyline because Bishop tells them about this and and now they know that one of their own members is going to betray them. For the next several years in the comics, it was like this big mystery, like who was the ex-traitor going to be? Yeah, that Clearly, would last for years. Well, yeah, and, and, the, and the ending was totally satisfying. It made sense. <sighs> you know, like we were like, like, obviously we were led to believe that it might have been Gambit. But what was really interesting about this was that this storyline was introduced at a time when the, it was at the beginning of the blue and gold team era. The, uh, uh, original X-Men had returned to the main X-Men team. There were like, you know, like 13 or 14 X-Men all together. The, the mansion had been rebuilt, rebuilt. Xavier had come back from space. And it was, so it was sort of like this like sort of happy time and like kind of back to basics in terms of classic X-Men stories. The arrival of Bishop drops in this idea that like one of the X-Men that we know is actually a villain and is actually going to kill the rest of the team. But this was one of like the first storylines that really introduced some potential conflict and uneasiness within the team itself. Intrigue. Intrigue is a great word for it. Bishop also was like the one cool member of the gold team. I think he's also notable just that he I think was the first black man who was a member of the X-Men. Let's discuss that in a second. Before we get too far away from the X-Trader storyline, can we decide right here and right now who the X-Trader was supposed to be? It was Xavier, right? Yeah, which was this, which was like, like it would have been better in my mind if it had been Jubilee than Xavier. (laughs) In the tape, Jean Grey says Xavier was the first to die. And then when we see the full, so eventually like Xavier 
becomes onslaught or like i guess like gives birth to this evil psionic energy uh, entity onslaught which is a merging of xavier with magneto's consciousness or something uh, yes <laughs> sadly that's exactly what it is uh when onslaught first attacks the x-men that is when gene gray makes that tape and we see the full version of it instead of saying like xavier was the first to die it's like xavier betrayed us and is turned into onslaught and it turns out that juggernaut was the first to die this is why gene can't be trusted with her own mission in the Pizza Hut comic books because she can't even report straightforward that Xavier is killing everyone. I mean, so I reread uh, Uncanny X-Men 287 today preparing for this episode. And that's where you like first learned about the X-Trader. It is a really cool comic. It was such a like, you know, intriguing storyline in the early 90s. I remember Wizard Magazine, I think, did several articles where they were trying to figure out who the ex-trader was going to be. Who do you think it should have been, Wes? At the time, reading the comics, Xavier seemed like a pretty good solution to that mystery because it's like, oh, and now we know it's Xavier, but it's not really his fault because we, we were all becoming really understanding about mental health issues at the time. Right, so they got to have the ex-trader storyline, but they didn't have to actually make any of the X-Men villains. I think that like Psylocke would have been a good option because her mind had been tampered with by the hand. She had been, you know, body swapped with with Conan. It just seems like you could have done something there that could have explained like why she turned evil and it would have been it would have been surprising but also would have made sense. It wouldn't have been like totally out of left field. That also would have been a completely different storyline. That would have been really interesting to see the hand used in that way versus sort of Onslaught stomping everyone. Taking the X-Trader storyline and wrapping it up amid Onslaught, this like ridiculous company-wide crossover was just, I think, a really not good storytelling choice. If I think about the X-Men of the of the 90s, I think that like my money would have been on Psylocke. To be honest, I was not reading the Blue series that closely. And she also wasn't on the animated series. So she wasn't as much on my radar at the time. She also had this like storyline in the blue series where she and cyclops were flirting with each other trash stay away from scott to be clear like he's flirting with her too so to make her the bad guy there is not good oh we know scott is bad i mean well scott is like terrible in relationships i mean see like he like left his wife and child to go hook up with his ex-girlfriend in any case they could have wrapped that flirtation into the whole like X-Trader storyline. Like, you know, there could have been like a thing where Cyclops leaves Jean Grey for Psylocke and then, you know, she attacks him first. And that would have actually made the um, the final, in the final panel of the video, Jean Grey is the last X-Man standing and she's confronted by the traitor. And if it had been Psylocke, that could have been, you know, sort of like a really interesting fight actually. Not just because they were fighting over Scott, but because they're both very powerful telepaths, just to be clear. But an appropriately written gene could easily whoop up on Psylocke. Oh, that's true. I mean, an appropriately wit- written gene could have easily whooped up on Onslaught, too, to be honest. An appropriately written gene wouldn't have been like, everyone is dying, the professor was first, when it was actually the professor. <laughs> yeah, she would She would have fed out the message in a more effective, succinct way. So shall we talk about, um, about Lucas Bishop? The figure? Yes. It's a good figure, but you can see at this time, there is like a humongous quality change. <laughs> you know, wave one and two, we have real looking, 
seeing people in superhero costumes and then all of a sudden we have this guy's just muscles everywhere. No, yeah, he, he looks like he's from a different line than the earlier figures. I think this is one of the best figures we've seen so far on the line. I got him for Christmas, probably Christmas 93. It's a great figure and it's good enough that they actually re-released it like three years later with a repaint and I got that one. Yeah, because like it, it could hold its own. Like the sculpt is really good. So Bishop's costume is actually just the uniform of the XSE. So when the other two XSE guys came through, they were wearing the same costume. It's predominantly blue and then has these like yellow highlights, which makes sense since like blue and yellow at this time like sort of had been established as like the go-to colors of the X-Men. Since he's sort of like a cop in the future, it makes sense that it's mostly blue. He also has this jaunty red bandana around his neck. Um, I was just thinking about that. It's very 2020 that he comes with a face scarf that he can just pull up. That's how you know he's from the future. He has this M tattoo over his eye. And I don't think that that was initially explained. Eventually it is explained that like all mutants get that tattoo over their eye to mark them as mutants. I love stories that deal with this dark future because it really raises the stakes in this future where for a time mutants were like put into concentration camps and are branded and are like discriminated against, you know, in a way that was like much more significant. He also brought two large guns back with him. Um, One of them I think was like sort of permanently in the figure's hand. Why would I ever take it out? Like why would, what would Bishop be without his gun? Bishop was sort of like the X-Men's cable in some ways. Although Bishop does have a mutant power that he uses frequently, he also like is often using guns. Bishop's action was he had a quick draw weapon release like he could sort of like seem to like pull his gun out from behind his back I guess. Which is awesome because the gun was hinged. It would flap forward. Bishop is the first black male X-Man, right? Yep. Which is like sort of crazy that it took them until 1991, especially given that like, you know, ostensibly this the major themes of the X-Men have to do with, you know, racial justice and equality. That's why I keep Googling to try to find someone else, but no, Bishop is it. There are no members of the X-Men who were black men before Bishop. Going to have to read this one that I just brought up and we might link to this. I'll read this later. Yeah, this looks really interesting. It's an article about the curious relationship of race and X-Men, a look at black mutants from black nerd problems.com we should definitely check this out yeah we'll we'll discuss later because i haven't had time to read it same he's a good figure if you stand him next to the gold team he does look like he's from a more violent stronger battle-hardened future than gambit banshee and the colossus you already have from waves one and two yeah that colossus did not spend nearly as much time killing criminals as bishop did and that was actually a point of contention when he first joined the x-men so when he went back to the past he followed fitzroy but fitzroy had also just broken out all these criminals from the future and brought them back to the past as well. In those like four issues between when Bishop first showed up and when he joined the X-Men, he spent that time killing all of those criminals except for Fitzroy. Problematic. We might not do that in 2020. Yeah, um, it wasn't great, but it also narratively just like tied up a lot of loose ends. <laughs> it meant that they didn't have to worry about figuring out what happened to all of those criminals from the future anymore because they're all dead. Thanks, Bishop. Well, they've all no doubt been resurrected on Krakoa. On Krakoa. All right, so shall we move on? Let's do Strong Guy. Many people think they're strong because they can lift heavy weights. <laughs> in reality, strength isn't just a measure of how good you are in the gym or what you can pick up. In fact, there are people out there who, without ever touching a weight in their lives, can naturally accomplish feats of strength that anyone would look at and call superhuman. Strong Guy joined X Factor for the simplest of reasons the regular paycheck. Caring little about the problems between man and mutant kind. He lives instead for the finer things in life, wine, women, and song. And he's not about using his tremendous mutant strength to put those who would criticize his lifestyle in their place. 
You know, with that write-up, I started to wonder if they were planning on doing an X Factor spinoff line, or and then they decided they couldn't. So what's interesting about this write-up is that it would make no sense unless you knew who X Factor was. So it sort of assumes that the reader has a level of knowledge about the X-Men comics that I think a lot of kids buying action figures back then really didn't. Should we fill in some of the gaps about who Strong Guy is and what X Factor was? I think it's important that people know that these are basically government mercenaries. And that was not always the case. There was a whole other problematic setup for the original X-Factor team with issue number 71 published in 1991. This is part of like sort of the line-wide relaunch of the X-Men. The original five X-Men had been the original members of X-Factor. They all returned to the X-Men. So they had this comic that like suddenly they didn't have any characters. They created a whole new status quo for the title. It was like this team of mutant superheroes who were, you know, paid for by the U.S. government. And what's interesting is that previously that role had been played by Freedom Force, which was a team of villains led by Mystique. So suddenly having a team of heroes who were working for the federal government was like a really interesting development. For sure, but they didn't stick a lot of really popular heroes in there. I mean, for us, maybe, but for like the general audience, I would say no. At the time that that X-Factor 71 came out, like these were really not popular characters. So Strong Guy, his real name is Guido Caracella. Do you know where he was before he joined X-Factor. Wasn't he a bodyguard for Lila? For Lila Cheney, who is a mutant with the power to open up portals across space. Like she, I don't know what they, they call it, like interplanetary teleportation or something. She's an intergalactic rock star and she's also a thief. So he was like a supporting character for this supporting character. And then he showed up in the Muir Island saga when the Shadow King had a group of mutants on Muir Island that he was controlling back when he was like making Moira dress really sexy. So every time she came on panel, people were like, why is Moira dressed so sexy? And we we talked earlier about how we thought Jim Lee got first pick of the X-Men when he was putting the blue team together. And I feel like Peter David, who was the writer for X-Factor during this era, like he got like the last pick of all the mutants when he was playing X-Factor together. Oh yeah, there was like a list and they're on like page five now. And he's like, well, can I have Havoc? Peter David often, many of the stories are like tongue in cheek. And that was definitely the vibe of that era of X Factor. And then like within that, I would say that Strong Guy was like the major comic relief character. So the reason why his name is Strong Guy is that they were having their first press conference, introducing the team to the public. And at that time he had no code name because he hadn't been a superhero before. When they asked him what his name was, he like, he came up with Strong Guy on the spot. I think it's important to know that this action figure came out in 1993 and then in 1994 he would die from a heart attack. He actually didn't die. He was put in suspended animation after a heart attack but it lasted for some time. So his mutant power is actually interesting. He's not just super strong. He has the ability to absorb kinetic energy and then if he doesn't release it by like punching something or hitting something it permanently distorts his body. His character is supposed to like have like a very big torso and very big arms and then kind of more regular sized legs and that's because when he was a child he was hit by a car and he absorbed the energy but he didn't know at that time he had to release it and so like it permanently distorted his body in that way. Whoa, I didn't know that. His heart attack was caused by him absorbing a bunch of energy. I think like in a dam that was exploding or something. His later character development is really interesting. He ends up dying and losing his soul and then becomes a lord of hell. Gets really dark, but that's getting ahead of things. Um, Should we talk about the action figure? I mean, it's uh, fair. (laughs) I'm glad that he gave him a gun. If you look at his like his fist, it looks like they like had given him the the holdy hands. They could give him a gun. I'm glad they didn't do that. That's true. I don't even know why he's here. 
And I think you agree, really, at the end of the day. It's really mind-boggling because he's such a secondary character. It's, it seems like they put, like, tentpole figures in each wave and then peppered in some less popular figures that they assumed that kids would buy. Bishop is a tentpole figure, but Strong Guy is not. As we go on the waves, I think we're going to see more of this pattern. Strong Guy does eventually show up on the animated series as a background character when all of X-Factor shows up, but that isn't not until, like, season four, so that's, like, 1995, 96. He his, his feature was that he punched. He had like one of those little, um, not a lever, but like a little Swivel thing. Swivel notches. Yes. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Anything else to say about him? Have they released one for Hasbro yet? Yeah, actually. He's the Build-A-Figure for the, like, for a, a wave that just came out. Like, I think the most recent Deadpool wave. It's a pretty good representation of the character, to be honest. No, it is. And like, and this, and this was our only strong guy figure until Hasbro released one earlier this year in 2020. For 27 years, this would, would be it. And it's a pr- pretty fair job. Shall we talk about the last figure of the day. I'm really excited about this one. This is fifth edition Wolverine. Who the heck are they? Before his transformation into the superhero called Wolverine, the man called Logan plied his trade as one of the world's foremost secret agents. His superhuman senses proved an invaluable asset in the realm of espionage, especially when enhanced by the most sophisticated sensing equipment money could buy. And his unequaled skill with razor edge weapons made him an unbeatable fighter, much to the regret of the enemies of world peace. That's cool. He works for the United Nations. That's kind of how they make it sound. So this is Wolverine 5th edition. This is Wolverine's costume from when he was a member of Team X, a black ops team that consisted of Wolverine, Sabretooth, and Maverick. They fought Omega Red back before Omega Red was frozen. There's a flashback in X-Men number 5, released in 1992, that shows Team X fighting Omega Red and has Wolverine and, that, and Maverick and Sabretooth all wearing this costume. And then appropriately, we see it in the animated series during a flashback in the episode Weapon X Lies in Videotape. So that came after this figure came out. The early issues of X-Men Volume 2 were phenomenally popular. So it made sense that they would make a figure of Wolverine in his Black Ops costume. Wolverine, he comes automatically with six blades, but he needs extra blades. So this one has knives, yeah. knives, knives, knives. Yeah, he has a bunch of little holsters where he can carry different knives. That doesn't really make sense. That's not something from the comics. He has a little like sort of visor. And is that like an oxygen mask? I think it's like a microphone. So like if you're out doing something, you might talk to the people oh, on your Black Ops team. It swivels back so you can see his face. His claws are just like a sculpted part of his hand. They don't retract. Because of that, they're much longer. I think they look really good. I think the, I think the toy looks really good. Yeah, and all, all the that... extra knives clip on, so it, it looks pretty cool. It doesn't make sense. You could definitely sell some knives for Cutco. Indeed. They started really hitting their stride with repaints here because they released a variant version of it in blue instead of black and a variant of it in green. It's exclusive to KB Toys. Good old KB toys. I'm just really fascinated by and interested in learning the thought process behind creating variants and repaint and how they financially justified it or who other than sort of speculators was buying these up. I I think that part of it may have just been down to like which one you saw first. If you didn't get them when they first were on the pegs, it was a way to re-release them and make them like sort of marginally different. The existence of this figure speaks to how heavily they were looking to the comic books for inspiration at this time. It, It makes sense. This came out in 93. You know, the animated series debuted in the fall of 92. 
too. And so that wasn't really a thing when these toys were being made. They only had the comics to draw inspiration from. And obviously they were trying to draw inspiration from the recent comics. In 2020, this is just a costume that Wolverine showed up in like in a handful of panels. But in 1993, this was, you know, Wolverine's Black Ops costume that we had just seen for the first time. You know, for all they knew, there was going to be, there were going to be more adventures, you know, more comics featuring his adventures during that time. We can definitely monetize this. Well, they just needed to find another thing to put Wolverine in to get another Wolverine on the pegs. And it made more sense to rush this out instead of having him in a scuba suit. That's a really good point. You know, if you think about the like Batman Returns action figure line, where they like literally did have like a scuba Batman with a sort of neon yellow Batman suit. Oh, we had that. Um, You had it? (laughs) Yes. I I had it as well. I also had like the radar dish Batman. I thought it was cool. But I do appreciate that about the X-Men line. They weren't going that route. They were solidly, at least at this point in time, drawing inspiration from looks that the characters appeared in in the comics. Before moving on, we need to figure out how many Snickets this gets. What's the Snicket? That's right. And so the Snicket scale goes up to five. Five Snickets means most superfluous, whereas one Snicket would be like a totally essential Wolverine figure. Yes. This is 4.5 Snickets. I have him at four as well. You don't need this, but it does harken back to a significant period in Wolverine's history. So if you look at his like knives, like one of them appears to be like a wrench. The other one like looks like it might be not tweezers, but like loppers for doing the hedge. It, It feels like this is like sort of like Wolverine, like with half of a, a standard toolkit attached to him. That would actually be really functional. Uh, yeah, kind of, I mean, the, you know, the mansion's constantly being destroyed, so it'd be nice to have all these tools lying around. Before I say wishes, I want to say we still hadn't covered a lot of the characters from the animated series, but Bishop shows up here and that was clearly a choice, which is a good choice. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think it's great that we got another black hero. I, I think that Bishop is clearly like the big superstar character in, in this wave. That also totally tracks in terms of his popularity in the early 90s. There was an issue of the Executioner's Kinner song storyline that had Bishop and Cable and Wolverine fighting. And like th- those three were like the big, grim and gritty, most 90s X Men characters at that time. I mean, we didn't have Rogue, Beast, Jubilee, Jean Grey, or Professor X at this point, but they decided to include him from the comic series. He um, he ended up being like a fairly major recurring character on the animated series as well. Like I mentioned, these characters are really bulked up compared to Waves 1, 2, and 3, and this is going to set the tempo. You think about sort of like like skinny Scott Summers from Wave 1, two years later we've got like Wolverine with like a thousand knives. Bishop looks like he could stuff Cyclops, you know, version 1 into a locker. In terms of wishes, I mean, I think that you touched on this. It's absurd to me. So there's so many great female characters in the X-Men. I would argue that we should have gotten a Rogue by now or a Jean Grey by now. I mean, even a Jubilee would have been cool or a Psylocke would have been cool. I mean, it's it's odd to me that we still don't have a Beast given that he was such a prominent character in the animated series and in the comic books. But again, like I think that that must have been strategic at this point. And if I think about Strong Guy, like I think that Havoc would have been a much, made much more sense as a first X-Factor character to debut. Even if if we had to get a like a, an X Factor character that maybe people weren't as familiar with, I would have preferred to have gotten the Multiple Man over Strong Guy, just because I think that Multiple Man is a really cool character. He had the trench coat thing, and also, I mean, it was a real missed opportunity for Toy Biz because like his action feature would have been just been you had to buy more than one of the toy. <laughs> I made one myself by painting a Silver Surfer and creating the trench coat. Well, we know you're good at making hand sewn trench coats. Like you said, this this wave definitely represents a step up in terms of the quality of the line. 
mind. I'm really excited that we're here because I think that like where we go from here, we're going to see some really cool figures. I'm, we've received our first fan communication. So this is a comment on one of our posts on Instagram from Prince Sirac 20. And he said, can't wait for your next episode, guys. Thumbs up emoji with the tongue sticking out. Wow. Prince Sirac you made my day when you commented on our post. I hope that our next episode lived up to your expectations. Yes, Prince. Thanks for commenting. And we were really excited to text back and forth about that. If you want your words to be read on our podcast, then you can also contact us. We are on uh, Twitter at ToyFix Podcast. We're on Instagram at ToyFix Podcast. You can also send us an email at ToyFixPodcast at gmail.com. If you do email us, let us know if it's okay for us to read your letter on the pod. We'd love to do that. Um, We'd love to hear about your memories of these toys, if you had them, your memories of these characters and of X-Men in the early 90s. If you could rate us or leave reviews for us um, wherever you hear, um, wherever you're listening to it, that would be fantastic. That's a great way for us to get the word out about about this podcast and to get more listeners. So if you could take the time to do that, we'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Please give us four stars or more. Yeah. um, If you don't like it, just don't listen to us again. But if you do (laughs) like it, Give us a good rating, please. And just some references. I will put links in the show notes, but I've got some good articles from uncannyxmen.net. We'll link to the Black Nerd Problems article and the review of the X-Men Pizza Hut comics, which is quite funny. So uh, I guess until next time, we'll be covering the villains for Wave 4. Fantastic. So until they reveal that Stacey X was actually the X-Trader, make mine toy facts. Thank you.